When you're dealing with people, you have to think of light differently. What? You have a good face. That's not what you said. <laughs> Why do you do that? Hmm? Say what when you've heard every word I've said. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 129, back to Cole's choice. What are we talking about today? Today I wanted to talk about Losing Ground from 1982. It's a semi-autobiographical film written and directed by Kathleen Collins and starring Sorette Scott, Bill Gunn, and Dwayne Jones. It's about a woman who is a philosophy professor and her relationship with her artist husband as they both pursue their own particular strands of the ecstatic experience. Now, there are a couple of notable things that we should mention right at the top. First, this is Collins' only feature film, as she died fairly young at age 46. Though it was made in 1982, this only finally got a theatrical release in 2015. No one picked it up for distribution at the time. 33 years later, 27 years after she died, it finally began to break through and gain traction among a number of cinephiles. It really is one of those sad cases where an artist is only truly appreciated after their death. So that really begs the question for me, because this is a landmark work in a number of different aspects. And so what or does it make a difference that this work was only discovered so long after her death when we can't see any more work from her? I don't know how you feel about it. I hope you'll tell me, but it bothers me. It bothers me in the same way that other artists are often only recognized after their death. I did see Surette Scott talking just a few years ago at one of the big premieres about this still being a good time for the story and that it had always been there, but people are ready now to see all facets of a culture. And so is it worth it to see that glimpse into a world that is vanished at this point? New York in the early 80s for intellectuals and artists? For people of color? Or like me, do you just sort of shake your fists in frustration? A little of both. I'm more prone to lean toward the side of, I just appreciate getting to have it whenever it comes along. It would have been nice to have it in context at the time, but if 2015 on is what we get, I'll take it. Well, that's a great way to look at it. I should probably stop being so frustrated. It, though, does make me regret things that are lost. That voice that we all could have used back then, that young filmmakers at the time could have used as well. But I guess it's never a bad time to get inspired by that kind of work, no matter how long afterwards you might be seeing it for the first time. One of the things that I like about the way that all this has unfolded, I think, fittingly for the film... You can attribute a fair amount of its resurrection to academics. And this is the second of two things that I wanted to mention right up here at the top. What is of important note here, this was the first feature-length drama made by a black woman since the silent era. 
Can you process that? I'm having a hard time even understanding it's that. It's difficult, yes. But the way that it came back around, I think, in addition to the film's other merits, it meant that professors were teaching it as part of a curriculum, focusing on black and female filmmakers, and that kept it in the public consciousness, at least on campuses. And then some other critics and programmers began to pick up on it, and it's really fascinating to me how the zeitgeist will coalesce around a particular title, and then it sort of gains a momentum of its own, because you know that on those syllabi were a number of other obscure and worthy titles, probably, but they just didn't catch a wave the way this one did. And we do also have to thank her daughter for getting this entire process started. Nina Collins was her heir, essentially, and so she got all of her camera negatives, her unpublished works, including short stories, a novel, but she didn't go through all of that work right after her mother died. It took a couple of decades as well. But because of Nina and because of this restoration work that happened through Milestone and through other academics, as you mentioned, we have all of this new work to ponder. Because Kathleen Collins was incredibly accomplished so many facets of her life. She was a civil rights campaigner. She was a professor, a filmmaker, an editor. She was an inspiration for people at the time, like Julie Dash, for example, who was a production assistant, working within the same community as Kathleen Collins. So I really hope to be able to check out this quote-unquote new work, new to me. For example, there's a collection of her work, her short stories, diary entries, scripts, screenplays, and it's called Notes from a Black Woman's Diary. Well, getting to the film, when we press play on this, immediately it's a time capsule in such a great way. It feels very much like a part of the indie scene of its day. But this title sequence, it also feels like the 80s, specifically like it's an approximation of certain mainstream 80s films or television. The color scheme and the music and all of that, I don't feel like it would be out of place next to something like Baby Boom or something similar. So, seeing that in this context, the biggest thing that this opening does for me is it makes me remember what wasn't there then. It makes me realize how few black voices you heard when you have this familiar 80s framework I see in the opening credits. Just how non-normalized it was to see certain black stories in popular media. What do you remember from that time? You were fairly young, seven, eight years old, around the time this film came out. Do you remember much about the representation that you were seeing at the time? I do, and it resulted in me feeling a little bit of a step behind. At that point, we were at the end of the exploitation movement in its popular heyday, but that's when I was seeing some of it on television as a young kid. That combined with early comedies of the period that I have nothing but incredibly warm, wonderful memories of. Getting home to watch Good Times was a highlight of my day. But they were specific kinds of stories, and Julie Dash, for example, talks about looking at that landscape and being famished for the theater of ideas. What kind of stuff do you remember? My experience is almost the same as yours. The majority of what I remember then were sitcoms, and they revolved around blue-collar families like that. Good Times was a big touchstone for me, too. Sanford and Son. I never saw my dad laugh harder than at Red Fox. So true. Loved watching that show. To this day, I love John Amos, but it was a pretty narrow band of experiences that I was being exposed to, and this wasn't just me. 
you have that quote from Julie Dash. And then there's a story that Kathleen Collins tells about producers telling her that they weren't sure about her story in this film because the lead characters, they couldn't relate to them. They claimed they didn't know any black people like that, particularly women. This is 1982. In retrospect, it just seems crazy. Think about that. To put this in perspective, as just one example, look at Howard University. It was founded in 1867. That's just one college turning out successful, skilled graduates for over a century with an extremely successful business school and law school, among other things. Now extrapolate that across all the other colleges in the country, historically black or otherwise, and imagine the unfathomable number of people you come up with. Now keeping that number in your head, imagine these producers saying they don't believe in these characters because they literally do not personally know, nor could they imagine that there is a black upper middle class or a black artistic or intellectual class. This is mind-boggling to me and infuriating I imagine these producers were likely from a major metropolitan area. Kathleen Collins lived and worked in New York, and so the people that she was talking to were presumably from there as well. So, they are saying they are unaware of prominent black thinkers from the civil rights era on, prominent black performers and artists in every discipline, in one of the most art-centric cities in the world. They act like they don't know the Harlem Renaissance ever took place to the point that they can't believe these characters exist. To say something like this, they are going out of their way to make the decision to ignore all of these things and more. I don't even know what to say about it. Even at 12, I imagine I thought it was a possibility. I learned as much from Sesame Street. Thank you for mentioning Sesame Street. Those are some of the first people of color that I saw on my screen as well, all being friends and pals together, working and living next to each other. The change really came for me in terms of seeing those things on screen a few years later, when, for example, I would see The Cosby Show and it just seemed like a matter of course that this family was just like mine. And then all of Spike Lee's films, that started happening when I was entering junior high, and my junior high was incredibly diverse. So it seemed like it was really reflecting, not specifically my experience, but the experience of people around me. Well, just by way of background, so people know what I was experiencing at the time, I grew up in a small and not at all diverse town in Southwest Oklahoma, and I was just about 18 and ready to leave that environment for the first time when I saw School Days, and that was probably my first extended look at a black academic environment. And not much of that is spent in the classroom. Yeah, because we were doing the butt at dances. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of what happens in school days is stylized and exaggerated for comic effect in some places. This film is more sedate, dry, a more realistic environment. And I process this more the way I process something like Killer of Sheep. There are obviously things, like you were saying, that I cannot directly empathize with because the black experience is not my experience. But there are universalities in both of those that I can key on that reflect things that I went through as a kid or as a student, or in this case, a husband. Some of that is based on being working class myself or being in the academic environment at one point. It's somewhat contradictory, but it's a part of what makes Losing Ground and other films like it remarkable to me, that ordinariness. I think because she essentially wrote about 
human subjects, not as race subjects, or not merely as race subjects. Though she gives us this incredible lens to examine that aspect of our main character's life as well. Yeah, I compare Sarah in this to some of the more outsized characters in black exploitation films, for example, and she's thrown into even more stark relief as far as what was available at the time. It's a thing that I relate to across the whole spectrum of films that I watch and enjoy, that genuineness. A story and its characters don't have to be exaggerated to be effective or to be memorable, and Collins herself pointedly resisted being mythologized. She wanted to explore and present her experience specifically as normal, and I really appreciate her insistence on that. Without artists like her, my worldview might still have been as limited as those producers that I referred to. And she was always much more interested in examining internal conflict, internal resolution, rather than the external, which is probably a harder sell to producers as well. Well, we start with Sarah in the classroom where she is dealing with a student with an obvious crush on her. And she shoots him down, but his questions about her being appreciated, they plant a seed, I think. And then later, a female student is singing her praises too, but that also comes back around to her husband. She is frequently defined by people with respect to her relationship to him. She's viewed by others through that prism. Is this one of those things that is a universality that you key on? Because I can't see our friends or people that you know doing that specifically about us. Am I just seeing that wrong? Is it something that you've dealt with to a larger general degree? I thought those days were behind me, but they're not. So come to work with me okay. on any day and I will show you what now happens. It's very weird. But I want to say, I think Kathleen Collins makes a statement right away. This classroom is full of men of color, which is really interesting. But I only spotted one woman, and she's white. And also, Kathleen Collins had me at the discussion around No Exit, which I love as a play. But anyway, it seems like we're talking about this relatable, to me at least, professional female journey, and then whether as a black woman she has an even more difficult journey as she has to explain herself even more. I can't speak to that last question, but as I alluded to, I'm now in this weird environment. I'm working in the grocery store and I am seen first and foremost as a woman, at least in my opinion, rather than a person among other women and men. How does that manifest itself? I mean that I am addressed as honey and lady and girl and ma'am constantly. It's foreign and it's annoying to me that it's just this gender identification. And also, it's one that's almost infantilizing me. Because I am 44 years old. I have not been a girl for about a thousand years. But by these older men and some older women, I'm looked at in just this very specific light. I'll do the sir and ma'am thing all the time, though, when I approach someone. I don't just walk up and say, hey, you. And also, do you think that some of that is to do with that we're in the South? I think that's part of it, because it's also some of my coworkers who are by and large younger than me addressing me. It's just this constant thing rather than my name, for example. Hey, Erica. And I'm wearing a name badge at the same time. So I'm not expecting everyone to somehow be above any of that, but I'm hearing it all 
day long. I don't think I'm necessarily articulating it well, but just imagine you walked into some place and somebody was saying, hey, son, do this for me. Go over there, do that. Instead of saying, Cole, can you come do this? I don't know. I think I'm digging myself a little <laughs> bit of a hole here. But I used to work in other professional environments, and I was never referred to that way. Well, let me divert your rant back to the film a little bit, and we'll Thanks. see what else we have going on <laughs> you. here. How do you feel about these performances? Because there's definitely something of the semi-pro to it. It can be a little mannered or stiff here and there. I like that it warms up as the film seems to go along. And I like that it's demanding of her actors. For example, you have a lot of longer than average takes in this. And it made me wonder how often she chose the specific setups to de-emphasize the shortcomings of some of the supporting players. But overall, how did it come across to you? I liked it. I was mildly distracted at the very beginning when Sarah is delivering her first lecture. She has a little bit of a mannered quality to her voice. And Sarette Scott is an incredibly accomplished actress and theater director. But this was still relatively the beginning of her career in that respect. And I think that you could see some of that. I think the worst that can be said at the beginning is there's a little bit more stiffness as opposed to overly dramatizing something, which I wouldn't have been as into if they had gone in that direction. Well, coming at it from my genre-loving perspective, it has some of the same qualities that I find really endearing in regional horror, for example. And that's especially fun because you don't often see those things applied the same way in relationship dramas. She's Gotta Have It, that had similar qualities. It's that punk rock DIY thing of, I could do that, but in an inspiring way, not in a demeaning way that anybody could do that. Kathleen Collins's work, that predates Spikes by a few years, and I kind of get an outsider vibe from her too when I read interviews, but this feels like it could have been firmly grounded in that indie scene of the early 80s. She has some things obviously in common with her other independent compatriots. Susan Seidelman is the one that comes to mind right away, for example. Low-budget production centering on women's stories, a mix of professionals and non-professionals, maybe with a greater focus on charisma and presence than traditional acting skills. I gotta say, though, the second that Bill Gunn mm. comes on screen, this guy was always charming and delicious to watch. The first time I ever saw him was on The Cosby Show. You gotta keep bringing up Cosby. I do. I'm <laughs> sorry. It's terrible that he's a terrible, terrible person. I've looked at some super cool photos of Bill Gunn and James Dean. They were pals. And this guy was just forever magnetic. Yeah, and I think he probably had the greater sum total experience of everyone on the production as well. And it really shows through in this natural delivery that he has. He has an enormous amount of easy charm and charisma. It was an excellent casting decision. Because he had already been acting for a few decades at this point and had also been an accomplished playwright up to this point, too. And this character, he's prone to roam and Gunn's qualities lead me to believe that he would be very successful in that regard. Is there a part of this character's search for a new area? I'm thinking that was specifically a search for new women in his life. Is there an intimation or even just a general vibe that he's a serial philanderer before we even get to the evidence? I'm not sure that I went that far. It seemed like, in his words, more of needing a constant different muse. 
So it didn't necessarily seem that dire, but what does seem dire is the way that he's undercutting the work that she does. This decision to go on vacation to the place that he chooses that is not going to be near to a library, which is important for her work, it's relatable not just as a marriage, but to any professional woman who might see her accomplishment undercut in the face of the needs of others. And how other people seek to validate what they think is important, it seems like it would feel like such a blow. Well, I feel all of that and more. I feel all of those professional insecurities, all of these things that she is constantly waging a battle against just to be able to stand up on her own. And then there's that seeming jealousy that creeps in later when they're batting it back and forth at the dinner table. It feels like it's all there. The looming specter of previous infidelities, possibly. The fact that he's only concerned with his satisfactions with the artistic possibilities of things and not paying significant attention to her concerns. There's a whole lot of Stop what you're doing and look at my thing on his part. Because even if we take out the question of infidelity or not, so, well, okay, actually, let me go back. If we leave it in, then all that she has is her work. And so he's trying to take that away too. And his work is everywhere. Since he's an artist, his work occupies their entire house when we're introduced to them. I first thought when she walked in that they were in a gallery. So how much space is there for her to even just be? looking at the art, it makes me wonder, how do you perceive him as an artist and these conversations that he has throughout? Because he continually dissects his process, or at least is talking about it. Do you feel like he's really on this quest for purity? Or is this just him pontificating and spinning his wheels? He's not doing anything differently. He's just talking a lot about it. He may be on autopilot, bouncing back and forth between these immense but familiar pieces that he creates and then sketching women that he will likely attempt to seduce at one point. So we have this larger discussion about the topic of her paper, her study on the ecstatic experience. And for him, it seems, it seems like he's exploring his own process of that and he's expressing it outwardly and verbally as she does. But it seems like she's heard all of this before which makes me think about where they are in their marriage, about 10 years in. And I also think about her age, and they have an age difference. So it seems like she was a very young person when they got together, because she's still quite young, not yet 30, I think, at this point. So it may not be previous infidelities that she is as worried about, but possibly she was one of these muses at one point and then fell into this relationship with him and sees how easily that could happen. It seems like an important part in whatever cycle that they might be in. Are they cycling away from each other at this point? And if it were me, it would definitely make me question his commitment. Because like you said, he can ping pong from these other things, rethink his direction in the face of looking at works of others. But what is he really doing about it? And how long will that period last? While we're on the subject of marriage, I think what makes this sometimes painful to watch is how much it underlines on one level how ridiculous and unnecessary any arguments are, period. But then how they simultaneously seem so unavoidable sometimes and the cumulative effect of those little slights. I appreciate how much she stands up for herself in those circumstances, but I do see a distinct difference between the two of them in these exchanges in the beginning. He is much more outwardly expressive. He verbalizes his inner monologue. Sometimes that almost sounds like warnings in some of these cases, especially 
that episode where he is telling her that he is no longer going to attempt to be pure. We can read that a lot of different ways. She does not do that. In this one way, specifically in relation to him, she seems repressed. How much of that, though, do you feel like comes from the relationship versus the life of the intellectual versus the artist? I've been struggling with that question because, you know, I tend to be very literal. So I look at this person and I think, this is just who she is. There's nothing that's being repressed. She's expressing it all, but we don't all have to have some volcano of passion inside of us necessarily. And maybe at this point, she's kind of talked out about those specific ideals that she knows who she is and she's been saying who she is all along. It's just not necessarily the person he wants her to be all the time. Well, then are we complicit? Because I admit, I do read her as a little rigid. How about you? Or am I just thinking of it the wrong way? Is it more a matter of there's just lines that she won't ever specifically cross? Yeah, I'm not sure either. I'm thinking about some things that happen later. For example, when they've gone to the vacation place and he has brought along his latest muse. And initially she's incredibly cold to this woman, Celia. And if you were just meeting this person off the street, that wouldn't be your reaction. But there's got to be this other history and what about the idea that she does somewhat relax into herself? The transformation, the fact that there's a change, does seem to imply that there must have been a rigidity to begin with if it loosens up somewhat. I guess so. It's hard for me to think of flexibility and rigidity going together because she does participate in that student film. But it doesn't seem like such a shocking, incredible thing that we're watching. It seems like, okay, I get it. I get why she would do this. I think about her in the face of her relationship with her mother as well. For both her mother and her husband, it seems like she's in service to both of them if they had their way. Not in terms of doing things for them, but being a person that they think that they need or being an amorphous quality that they think that they need at the time. So ultimately, I don't think that she's a drip. I think that this is who she is and I don't think that that's a bad thing. And I guess... I think of rigid as being more of a negative. So I'm hesitant to push her that way. Well, we know that she recognizes it in other places. From her studies, we know that she thinks the religious boundaries around ecstasy are too narrow, for example. And we see she has happy moments. Her happy moments take place in the library. And then her necessary moments, which is a distinct line I want to draw, take place later in collaborative art. She does know that she has those cold analytical qualities, though. So why take offense when Victor specifically brings it up? I guess that's what I'm thinking again about if you are who you are, you don't think of that as a bad thing until somebody says, why are you so cold? Well, I don't feel things in the same way that you do, or I'm not responding to you in the way that you want me. So it's just a thing that exists in one box and then is suddenly bad in another light. And it makes me think, too, about the number of times she's probably had to compartmentalize herself just to make her way in the world. I really do love the way that they interact on that level, though. The scene that we did for our opening, why do you say that? Say what when you've heard every word I've said? Anyone can write an argument with people yelling at each other, but this feels extremely real, and it's an incisive piece of writing on Colin's part. This way that you can dissect someone's rhetorical style 
only once you've known them for a very long time. And there are some of us, I'm pointing the big thumb at myself, who sometimes think we're answering the question that we have heard, but we haven't. (laughs) We think we heard it a certain way, and we didn't. More a case of answering the question you want to have had asked rather than the one that was asked? Yeah, or the one we think should be asked. The words we really want to get out. Well, in the meantime, Victor has found and recruited his model, and it seems like that Sarah's suspicions might have some merit. Because, really, has there ever been an artist that has approached a potential subject like this with entirely pure motives? But what does Sarah really have to be insecure or jealous about? These types of characters, or people in real life, that are liberated in every sense but sexual, confound me sometimes. The intellectually liberal, but otherwise uptight or conservative, they're unable to reconcile what they think with how they actually live. It's different on paper than in practice. Those characteristics frustrate me. I don't know. I I disagree a little bit with that characterization because we first meet her talking about existentialism, not about sexual liberation. At no point does it seem like she is defined by her sexuality. And does she have to be? There's a sensual component to the pursuit of the ecstatic that I think is necessary, is the only reason I would say, yes, it's important. Not that she has to be, but that at least we should consider it in this conversation. So you think that there's something specifically she's not expressing, not willing necessarily to express or explore? Not that she's not willing, but maybe that she just doesn't know how to yet, or maybe that she's just even unaware of exists right now. But we'll get to that a little bit more later. I have a few questions for you specifically about that. In the meantime, her doorway to all of this, she agrees to this acting job in this student short film that she's been offered. Which I love, by the way, and I would love to see it in its entirety. It's specifically the director who's so much fun and so enthusiastic. And when he says, my uncle is doing me a favor, it definitely sees like, yeah, this kid is somebody's nephew. Now, when she accepts this role, do you think that she does this a little bit out of revenge or is it just to break out of herself or is it a little bit of both? To me, I saw it as a different type of validation, not in the shadow of my husband, but for me as a woman and as a desirable one, an interesting one. And it gives her the opportunity to dance in the way that we first meet Celia, the artist's model doing. I was thinking about the different ways that we could look at this, and I think the impact might have been less, for instance, if we reversed their vocations. And I think you were just alluding to this a little bit. There is a lot built into her moving into the artistic realm. When she does that, do you feel like there is resentment about that on his part? Because with his arrogance and his pomposity, there has to be a part of him thinking, look at this dilettante. She thinks she can just be an artist. She's bound to fail. He clearly discounts her abilities. Then when she achieves some success or even satisfaction, he seeks to undermine that. I think he's gotten pretty complacent by deciding that she doesn't surprise him. And it annoys him when she has by just being herself or doing something a little bit different. So that he doesn't get to run that same tape in his head of I know everything about her and she's so boring. So it's more that than, say, the need for control or jealousy or just protecting what he sees as his turf? Because what you're saying is contradictory to what he's been ruminating on all this time. The notion of purity 
That's what she's achieving. Exactly what he praises in his mentor. It's something raw. It's unadorned. Something not so burdened by conscious process or pretense. No, I'm I'm with you. I do think you're right. And I do think there's still that element of he's annoyed because they can't repeat the same patterns again. Because yes, he's definitely giving that vibe of jealousy and he's clearly got to insert himself back into this world and specifically as a man, not as an artist. So it seems like he's expressing that side of himself that he knows well, that aggression. And then on her end of things, there's a duality that makes for a tension that I really like. On one hand, Creative, sensual expression seems like, I was saying, a necessary opposite to the dry, not completely fulfilling academic life. But on the other hand, how much must she always be thinking that art is her husband's domain and anything that she achieves in that realm will be forever in the shadow of his creative achievements? Is there some part of her that will always be measuring herself against that? Because everyone deserves the ecstatic, right? They do, and I think we watch her achieve it when she's writing. But I want to go back again to him for just a second. I don't see that he views her in the same way that she might have viewed him. I don't think, truly, that he thinks that she's going to have an affair, which might be what we or she immediately assumes when she sees Victor. Instead, that insertion of himself as a man is, look at what I can do, look at what I have done, as opposed to preventing her from doing something. It just constantly seems to be this self-centered approach to everything, rather than worrying about something that she may or may not do. Protecting his own feelings and his own experience and his own accomplishments. Well, when you contrast the two like that, it makes me wonder how I'm defining the ecstatic experience, because the ecstatic moment is not always necessarily that easy to discern. In his case, like you say, it's probably much easier to see because he is advertising it. But sometimes it's quiet. It's small. Sometimes it arrives after the fact. She's only been chasing it in an academic sense until now. But with this film project, she is searching beyond the bounds of her thesis, finally. This is not study. Is she aware of that herself yet at this point in the film? When do you finally feel like she realizes that's what's happening? I do think we see it at the very end when she's fully embodied that character that she's playing and we see the tears. I think it's come then. We don't have that external resolution. It's the internal one, but expressed in a completely different way than we've seen from her at all. Well, predictably, he does not encourage her artistic expression. And she is undaunted, though. She, I think she's as much under the influence of her mother in chasing that. Based on her mother's experience, it's not uncommon to use performance as an excuse, it feels like, to transgress in some way. And I'm conflicted here how I feel about this, using this path to achieve the ecstasy that Sarah is seeking. Is there no way to achieve it honestly without a crutch or an excuse? How much of these new feelings that she's able to access is because that she is playing a character? I guess I have a hard time in this respect thinking about any avenue being illegitimate, especially when we're talking about acting, playing a character within, you know, a relatively safe space, a student film. Her mother does it professionally. 
So it's not as though she has to go out and, you know, kill somebody to feel something or have sex outside of her marriage to feel something. It doesn't ultimately seem that tragic and terrible to explore a new route in order to feel something a little bit differently. But you feel like it's very false? No, I wouldn't say very false. I see your point about it's not by any means necessary. It's not that severe. It's one of those instances probably where I'm giving away more about myself and how I approach a thing than anything that's happening on screen. The way we interpret things, all of that is grounded in what we're made of and what we've gone through. And I'm just drawing lines that don't necessarily apply here, I think, now that I've listened to what you had to say. And while you're talking about it, while we're on the subject of her pursuing something outside the marriage, is there any better candidate for that than Dwayne Jones? I want to say... I love Dwayne Jones because we haven't talked very much about him so far. Between this, Night of the Living Dead, and Ganja and Hess, he is firmly one of my favorites, and it's such a great thrill. He's such a great presence every time he turns up on screen. Again, one of those sad things, we lost him way too young, too. It's just that Surrette Scott is, is still with us, thankfully, but we don't have Kathleen Collins, Bill Gunn, or Dwayne Jones. I think what is the biggest contrast here is that he right away, the first time we see him, is talking with her about her specific journey in this thing that she's so interested in exploring. And he's wanting to talk with her about it on her terms. Because we get the impression that it's unexpected. It's not something that happens to her very often anymore at this point in her life. Her reaction to that is the flip side of Victor's reaction to being knocked out of his rut. This unexpected happening, it's very alluring. It's very enticing. Rather than upsetting her apple cart, it is putting her on the path that she needs and wants to be on. But while we're talking about the flip side of things here, Victor, he does seduce his model. Do you feel like, much like her taking the job initially, there is a revenge component in this? Is he getting back at her for daring to do something for herself? And you do think that they had sex. You're 100% on that. I don't know that the film intimates that they actually went that far, but it very clearly shows that there is an emotional affair happening here. That's just as big an infidelity as anything. Yeah, because I'm not totally sure. And part of that is Celia, who is giving off a different vibe than Victor does. Her seems like young and fun-loving without specific malice or forethought or her own need to prove anything. So it seems like she's just sort of having a good time. But at whose expense? I think she's so young that she doesn't think about that necessarily, or she maybe hasn't done anything that she feels terribly about. I think his pursuit is the same thing. I think maybe revenge is an afterthought, but I think he was going to do this no matter what. Now this is kind of dark and deep, where we're getting into here, but we should also say there is a fair amount of equally well-observed humor in this whole thing, too. When Sarah and Duke are filming a particular scene and they stop walking both obscured behind trees and the director within the film, he yells at them and keeps yelling until they finish that scene with a kiss. It's very funny while simultaneously setting up a severe complication. It's a very nephew thing to do, sort of apologizing. I didn't tell you in advance, but now you're going to have to kiss for real on screen. And at this point in the film, Sarah has no knowledge yet of what Victor has done. So her transgression here feels equal, if we're being honest about it. By that, I mean that is based on the information she is 
acting upon. It's not exactly a case of what's good for the goose is good for the gander, but I anticipate the audience won't see it that way. It's a little manipulative because the audience will judge it differently due to the chronology that they are aware of. What do you think is going through her head in that moment? And if, like we were talking about a moment ago, if you view that as, oh, she's using this acting job as an excuse to kiss this guy that she wants to kiss. I saw it first as she's being directed to do this and it's not a huge deal, which probably says more about me. And I think you make a great point because there are a lot of things that I'm willing to assume and forgetting that they're living in different cities at this point while she's doing this film and he's back doing his work and she doesn't know that Victor and his model were dancing together seductively. Well, we're about to find out how everybody feels about it because Sarah brings Duke home for the weekend with her and immediately Victor and Duke are sizing each other up. Victor lashes out in various ways, specifically asking her to dance in counterpoint to how well that was going with his muse, only to then insult her saying, I always forget you can't dance. But she can. He just doesn't acknowledge or recognize it. He's not the right partner. So we have the answer to the questions that all her students were seemingly asking. No, he doesn't appreciate her in that way. He's completely exposed here, I feel like. And Celia cements that deal because she completely undoes his attempt to control her too. This party is a drag. <laughs> it's true. And also a testament that each character is interesting and rounded and has something to say. But Sarah is also not always that easy to deal with. We have to be fair. If we're talking about rounded characters, everyone has their flaws too. The scene around the pool where everyone is gathered, where she is talking about how she hates water, maybe throwing a little water herself on the fun that everyone else is having. But in this instance, has she been set up to fail or has she been all this time predisposed to disappoint, at least in terms of this thing you were saying earlier about Victor and her mother being in their service? Because I said it earlier, spontaneity is a key component to the ecstatic, I think. She's never going to find it truly without that. I suppose it's different for everyone, but isn't ecstasy one of those things that typically only occurs when you are not specifically looking for it? Can it be achieved through rigor or through study? Because maybe that opens you up to the ecstatic, it prepares you for it, but I don't picture it as a moment that you can force to happen. It makes me specifically me, feel set up for failure too. Because what is terrible about not necessarily being spontaneous all the time? What is so terrible about after sleeping outdoors and waking up to probably a pretty cold, wet morning that you don't want to get in the water? That there could be some cultural aspects to that, that he's setting her up for failure. And so if you've pursued this life of study... Why not keep down that path? Why suddenly have to be a different person? And why have to have these experiences cut off to you? So again, I'm imbuing that answer with my own experience. That I don't like to be set up for failure. I don't like to think you have to be a certain way to experience a certain thing. Right. And maybe I am looking at it through my narrow lens. Does she want a different ecstasy than I am willing to allow for? She wants to feel something that might not be it and appropriate the ecstatic label for it. Because who am I to say? And then also I think, how helpful can a different creative outlet be? She's so much in her own head all the time, personally and professionally. You mentioned this earlier. 
is it a different satisfaction when she is more physically engaged, for example, in making this film? She moves more. She dances. Does it make for a more balanced, whole, and happy person when you're doing both? Do you relate to that part of it, that mind-body connection and how that balance has to be right? I do relate to that. And I think the important part about that student film is that it's silent. It's wordless. So she doesn't have the opportunity to express what it is that she's thinking verbally. It's all physically. And I'm a person who does like to express myself physically, but I don't always have an outlet for that. To get a little more granular with that, that physical expression, how much of that do you feel like is specifically sensual physical expression, not just exercise, for example? Well, I would say that in my very specific way that maybe not everybody can relate to, when I dance, I feel like I am being most myself at that point. And that is sensual to me, but I'm not a hoochie-coochie dancer, for example. <laughs> it's just that for me, that makes sense. Let me move things in just a little different direction for a second. Speaking in terms of things that you can relate to, we often choose things to complement each other on the show. How do you feel like this works in conversation with the subject of our last episode, Cleo from 5 to 7? It has some surface similarities, even going so far as to each have a scene in which women visit fortune tellers. Are there things that you see in particular that these two films share that make them work as counterparts some 20-odd years apart? I think they both show us women of their time trying to be themselves, trying to express themselves. Though, I want to actually go back a little bit further. It made me think about our Matrix episode, actually. Because if we're talking about the theater of ideas, and this certainly is that, we're contemplating heady philosophical ideas. I mean, the ecstatic moment, that's a big thing. And we talked about in the Matrix that you felt like maybe some of those questions or this world that was created, those questions posed weren't necessarily resolved. So do you feel that it works better here, that those questions are answered, that exploring a fixed philosophical idea that isn't talked about all the time or not necessarily that we can relate to, that Kathleen Collins ultimately carried it through? I want to draw the distinction that what I was saying about The Matrix is specifically not that those questions aren't answered, but that the Wachowskis don't offer their own answer. You don't get to ask the question and not have an idea about it specifically yourself, or at least give a full accounting of that idea. And in this case, I think it definitely works that way. I'm not left questioning anything in the philosophical regard. I do feel unresolved, and I'll get to that. It's a bit of a longer answer. Because what happens first, finally, she can't take his philandering anymore, and she calls him out in front of everyone. In the aftermath of this big blow-up, she calls her mother, and she is saying, what Victor loves in her is order. There's no chaos. He would say, boring, maybe. And it's that quality that even her mother admits to counting on in her. And that, I think, may be an even more galvanizing moment than anything with her husband or a potential suitor. She is forced to face the possibility that even her mother thinks that she might not have it in her to achieve the ecstatic. And her mother being who she is, she has to find that extremely disappointing. Now she's leaping off of that conversation as a springboard into filming this final scene of the Frankie and Johnny short film. And while I'm thinking about it, are all the parallels with their lives too on the nose, do you think? With this big finish and the symbolic death of the lover with Victor arriving just in time to observe the whole thing? 
I definitely think you can see Kathleen Collins's completionist roots. I think you can see that in her work as a playwright and an author, that she's going to construct something specific and whole. And she also said that in my work, I take you to the explosive moment and that's where I leave you. So we don't see an end connection after Sarah, in the course of the film, shoots her lover. So maybe it's a little on the nose, but it's a lot more interesting than a number of other things that you'll see. That's a great thing that you mentioned. I hadn't heard about Collins talking about that explosive moment because I was inclined to think so, that it was too on the nose right up until the moment that she pulls that trigger. And then I realized right then, no, this is exactly what has to happen. And then even with that powerful ending, it doesn't hit you like a revelation exactly. It's a smaller, more lingering effect that this has. Or is that the case for you? Because it is for me. Because what we are left with, finally getting to my long answer, is so much uncertainty, but not of the philosophical kind in the Matrix, like we were saying. It's lingering, definitely, for me, too. Because I do think, again, we are in the middle of a cycle. Now, we may be at the end of one cycle. We just don't know that right now. But it's a story that she's been building that still is going to continue after we leave them. Right, because there's absolutely no resolution in terms of their marital problems. This metaphorical murder of the romantic partner in the film that she is participating in indicates, at the very least to me, that a significant change or evolution in their relationship will have to take place. There's nothing else to do. And then speaking of evolution, the more important part of this whole process is that she is nowhere near finished with her transformation that's happening within her as she pursues her ecstatic moment. You asked me earlier if I was frustrated or how I felt about this coming to light, you know, 30 odd years down the line. What it really comes down to when I see this ending is that I only wish I had had access to it 30 years earlier. And we talked earlier also about what was happening in front of us at the time, the cultural landscape. I look at what was happening in 1982, or at least what I was aware of, in terms of black performers in the mainstream, and the highest profile performer was arguably Eddie Murphy because of 48 Hours, Saturday Night Live. And that's just the complete opposite end of the spectrum from a stifled female philosophy professor. Richard Pryor, he was coming off Busting Loose and had just released Live on the Sunset Strip, which my grandma took me to when I was 12, which just blew my mind. Totally. He'd also just done Some Kind of Hero just before that, which I like because I think he is a vastly underrated dramatic performer. But a lot of mainstream audiences, they only wanted comedy from Pryor, which is their huge loss. But it goes back to that thing that I was saying earlier about the vast majority of black culture that I was encountering through entertainment it was comedy and then music also. Black dramas were not something that I was routinely exposed to until I grew up a little and I realized a couple of things. One, that those stories were produced in much smaller numbers. And two, I had to actively go look for them. For me, like a lot of my generation, that really revolved around Spike Lee. I think you have a similar experience. I was at the right age for Sundance and the explosion of the American indie scene in the late 80s to provide a lot of my quote-unquote serious early film education. I was so excited by She's Gotta Have It and School Days and then Do the Right Thing just blew my whole world up. And so, like you and I often do, I started following those leads and chasing down other things 
that I gleaned from interviews where he would mention collaborators or influences. I was 16, 17, 18, that part of your life where you are beginning to learn more about the world and form your adult self. And so one of the painful realizations from that period after doing that research was that there were a lot of black creators out there working, but no one around me or on the television were talking about them. Others obviously in more populous and diverse places might have had a different experience. But in Southwest Oklahoma in 1986, no one was coming up to me and saying, hey, what do you make of these L.A. Rebellion films? Happily, though, access is much better now. Exposure and representation is much better now. And it's really gratifying to see the journey back from obscurity that this title in particular has made to now essentially be part of the canon of African-American independent film. So a huge thanks to those professors, to those critics, to those programmers, to her daughter that kept fighting the good fight. Thanks to people like Milestone Films. For a relatively small catalog, they have some pivotal black American films on their roster from Collins, Charles Burnett, Billy Woodbury. Losing Ground is also on the Criterion channel as of this recording right now, so I hope a whole lot more people can discover it. I want to say again that I'm so excited to explore more of Kathleen Collins' written work. By the way, I don't know if this is the greatest thing that I've heard or the saddest thing that I've heard, but her friend and colleague, Peggy Damon Priestley, said that Martin Luther King Jr. was inspired by words that Kathleen said when they had all been together in writing his I Have a Dream speech. The sad part, thinking about what we lost. The wonderful part, thinking that I can now access that work. Wow. After that, yeah. <laughs> it actually almost seems counterproductive to ask, but do you have a further recommendation as far as viewing from this? I do. Hopefully this will be a huge letdown, but I am recommending Major Barbara from 1941, directed by Gabriel Pascal and adapted from the 1905 play of the same name by George Bernard Shaw. A whole lot of greats worked behind and in front of the camera, including David Lean and Deborah Carr in her big screen debut, alongside the stars Wendy Hiller and Rex Harrison. You know, I'm a huge Wendy Hiller fan. It's about an idealistic major in the Salvation Army with a sprawling family and community, often at odds with her ideals in true Bernard Shaw fashion. I chose it because of that central female character and her spiritual quest. And there's that usual Bernard Shaw trenchant comedy and dialogue that seemed to work in any decade. Because I really struggled to find something fitting to recommend for Losing Ground because I was looking at all of these different stories, and we've covered a number of them, I'm glad to say. But when you start to look at female-made or female-centric stories, it was a whole lot of romantic comedies that just didn't seem to fit. But this did. And I'm a huge Shaw fan anyway, and I was delighted to see the spirit in which this film was captured, so I hope everybody checks it out. How about you? Well, I chose something a little more closely tied to it, both in terms of being contemporaneous and actually having literal connections between performers. And I chose Personal Problems from 1980, and that was a film directed by Bill Gunn himself, written by Ishmael Reed and starring Verdame Grosvenor. It's a shot-on-video, feature-length meta-soap opera of sorts that loosely follows the marital issues of a couple as they navigate their everyday lives, their circle of friends and family, and their city. 
I can't help but see it as a bit of a forerunner to and a direct influence on losing ground. It has a similar DIY aesthetic. It's rough around the edges. It too is a detailed and complicated look at black lives that weren't routinely part of the mainstream pop culture conversation at the time. In the same way that some of Losing Ground ties to Cleo from 5 to 7 in small ways, my recommendation ties to that episode's recommendation too in that a change to handheld consumer technology invigorated an artist with its possibilities and its immediacy. If you are interested in seeing further intimate and low-key examinations of black life in America in the 80s, along with more of Bill Gunn's charm and aesthetic, then you should give this a look. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Major Barbara and Personal Problems. And that brings us to the end of episode 129. First and foremost, we would like to say a special thank you to two new Patreon supporters since the last episode, Derek Smith and Mr. Renoir, who administrates the Cinema Renoir groups across various social media platforms. If you are a fan of Region 2 media in particular, those groups are especially worth your while. So thank you, gentlemen. We appreciate that very much. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would also like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Matt and Travis for having you on the complete podcast again to continue your discussion of the Three Colors trilogy. The episode covering white is up now and red will be coming soon. We're midway through. We've been each watching as we go because we want to keep everything fresh. So I cannot wait to get to red. And it's been so wonderful to go on this journey with them. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Doug McCambridge over at Good Times Great Movies. Laura Cannon and the Fatal Films Podcast. Scott Morris and the Fine Gentleman at Fuds on Film. Andy Wolverton. Mike Scharf. Josh Hornbeck and the Criterion Channel Surfing Podcast. Tim Lego, Ed Jones, and Aaron West. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 